VH2F is really focusing on the preventative from the physical standpoint, but also from the mental standpoint, giving them those coping skills, the training, the mindfulness, all those things that they can work on cognitively and to be more squared away holistically. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome Army Colonel Arthur Yeager. Colonel Yeager is an occupational therapist and is a deputy chief for the Department of Rehabilitation at Walter Reed. He began his career in the Army as an enlisted member and then served as a commissioned aviation officer and helicopter pilot. He has deployed multiple times to Southwest Asia. You can learn more about his bio on wardoxpodcast.com. In this episode, Colonel Yeager describes his journey from a combat arms officer to now serving in a military medicine role. He describes the training involved in becoming an occupational therapist, as well as the role of the OT officer in a deployed setting. Colonel Yeager talks about becoming an inventor and developing patented tools that assist patients with activities of daily living. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome Army Colonel Arthur Yeager to Wardox. Art, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Tell us about your entry into the military, as we understand that your career initially began in Army aviation. Well, actually, I was like, I can't make it into college. So I thought, well, I'm going to go in the Army. And I always wanted to fly, just wanted to fly. And so, you know, a recruiter showed me a brochure of a AH-1S, a Cobra. This is pre-Apache. And I just never seen a helicopter like that. It was so cool. Two pilots sitting behind each other. You know, I had the, the GT scores so that I could pick any MOS that I wanted. And I was just like, yeah, I want to fly. And that's what I want to, I want to be a crew chief on that. And out of all the five aircraft that the military had in their inventory, Chinooks, uh, OH-58s, OH-6, all that stuff, I picked the only aircraft that there was no place, no nowhere to flight suit and going with them everywhere. Definitely crewed the aircraft, just didn't get to go with them. But the recruiter showed me on the fact we go to Vietnam, they'd actually get the crew chief sit in the front seat. Yeah, well, that was to be a counterweight for all the ammo that they dispelled. I quickly found out that I, I wasn't going to be doing all the flying that I wanted to do. So, But that was really where I got my mechanical experience. I didn't really have much before that, but I enjoyed doing that part of it. And then while I was in Alaska, the Army had a program where they'd pay for 90% of your college course. So the first college course I took with was how to be a private pilot, a pilot, the ground course. And I took the course and I got an A and I was just like, oh, well, maybe I'm smart enough to take a college course. And then I took a few more and took history and English and psychology. And I was like, I was doing really well. And before I knew it, I had a year's worth of college under my belt. Then I found out about another person in my unit got a went green to gold, which was a ROTC scholarship. And basically it was three years and the army paid for your tuition. You got commissioned when you were done and you could go to any school that you wanted to. So that sounded like a pretty good deal, but it seemed like it was very competitive, hard to get. But I got my commander to sign off on it and recommend me. And uh, it really was a life-changing moment when I got that letter saying I was accepted into it. In college, I was actually kind of a, a what you call a, a barrage shrink where people come in and talk to me and stuff. And I really enjoyed that. I even had a little lounge chair in there and stuff. And I just thought the degree that I wanted to get was something like in social work or counseling, something like that. 
However, my GPA was good enough that I was a distinguished honor grad and one of two people that got basically to choose their branch. So, of course, I picked aviation. During your career in aviation, were there just any kind of just crazy experiences that you had that you say, wow, this is, this is the story that you tell people about your aviation career before medicine? Yeah, I'd say probably the most diverse mission that we did was fly across the Adriatic to Croatia, to Dubrovnik, which was the site of Honorable Secretary Brown's aircraft crash. It was a 737 that crashed into a mountainside. And uh, we took four Chinooks over there. And basically our primary mission was to recover everything off the mountain from mostly the aircraft. I mean, there was some remains and stuff like that. That was uh, something you don't see very often. I mean, I was actually on site. We landed, walked around and stuff like that. But we also did sling loads and stuff. I've never seen a crash. I've never seen pictures of a crash like that before or walked on to where people were standing. And there was one stewardess who actually survived a little bit could see where she was at for a while, but the clothing articles, the, the gear, the, the instruments, and just, it was just horrific. And on top of that, we had, we had to use really long slings, like a hundred foot long slings because schmooks create 200 mile per hour winds from their prompt wash. And people on the ground were really kind of really disturbed by the fact that they're breathing the ashes of remains and stuff like that. So we had to get really high which makes it kind of challenging when you're picking up engines and wings and stuff like that with a, with a helicopter. We're not used to using sling loads that long. We found out later that places that we were hovering over and to scout areas, we found out that they were actually laden with mines and we were actually contemplating landing at a few of those sites. So, but we didn't find that out till later, surprisingly. The most bizarre part of this whole trip was that Dubrovnik, Croatia was a huge resort area. And beautiful, beautiful town, lots of hotels around there. We actually stayed in the airport on the luggage carousel, slept on that. And uh, the whole airport was just so shot up and blown up and sandbagged and everything like that. But we're there for a while. And then the hotels were actually coming to us and bringing us catered meals. I mean, it was cheap and stuff, but that was just really bizarre. I'd never been on a field exercise or anything like that, where they're bringing these very nice meals and they sent out a barber and it's just, just kind of surreal. Not, I mean, with the trauma of all that balanced with these niceties that you would normally have when you're deployed. What ultimately spawned your interest in becoming a part of military medicine? As a commissioned officer, I'm primarily, as I got higher up, I mean, just as a captain, I was at fifth corps headquarters. As a staff officer, I volunteered to go to Bosnia and I got snagged at fifth corps headquarters under a four-star general with then an 06 Odierno, who was his chief of staff at the time. And I was just like, I don't want to do this staff stuff for the rest of my career because Chinooks are commanded by a major where all the other types of aircraft units are by captain. So even though I was in charge of eight aircraft, huge hand received stuff. I had to get a command first with like a headquarters company or an ATC unit. And at Fort Campbell, the line was about 14 other captains before me. And I was just like, I'm going to be here a long time before I ever get a command. And we need that command to get major. And I was just like at 12 years, four years enlisted and eight years as a commissioned officer, I was, I'm going to get out of the military. So I actually resigned my commission and I wanted to be a social worker kind of tapping back into the, the counseling and stuff. So how about occupational therapy? What, what got you interested in occupational therapy 
and what training is necessary to be a military occupational therapist? Well, what mostly got me interested was a reality check by two friends of mine that were occupational therapists who said, what you're going to probably end up doing as a social worker is you're going to be working with people that don't want to be seeing you, you know, assigned by the, the county or the state or something like that. And you're not going to be doing what you think you're going to do. So I've already done that in the, as far as being a crew chief goes, and as far as being a pilot, I've always had these notions of how I think it's going to be. And uh, it doesn't turn out right. And so they said, you'd be really good as an occupational therapist because I have a lot of hand skills. I'm, I'm very artistic. I wood carving, create things and stuff. And they just said, you'd be really good in this field. So I, I checked out some programs and that's what really got me into it. And I found a unique one at Philadelphia University. So tell us what the pathway would be for someone who would want to become an occupational therapist. It's varied. It's changed over time. At one, when I came in, you could do an internship. In other words, uh, an OT degree, you have to have six months field work. So two ro rotations at two different places. And uh, there's level one and level two. And so we don't do the internship anymore. I mean, we have for, for a long time, but we've done away with it. So that was the main way. You were finishing up your degree and you do your internship there. So you'd actually commission in your, after you were done with your academics, and then you would do your field work at, at Walter Reed or at uh, BAMC. And so that was my indoctrination to the military OT was doing that field work. The field has grown to now that you basically need a PhD to be an occupational therapist. When I came in, there were people that had bachelor's degree and it's kind of grown. And then it was like, now you have to have master's. Well, now it's like you have to have a PhD. So the army came up with its own program at Baylor, which is a, a doctorate in science and occupational therapy. And so that is the way to come in now. If you want to get that further education, get the military to pay for it. The other way is to already have your degree, already have your license and just direct commission. And we're heavily recruiting for that for the first time in probably 20 years. We're really growing. What's the difference between occupational therapy and physical therapy? Well, the biggest thing that I want to dispel is just the word occupation. We have kind of an identity crisis because people associate occupation with work. So we often get confused with occupational health. But the biggest difference is, I mean, even though you'll have some physical therapists that are hand therapists, that's mostly neuromusculoskeletal stuff. We're talking about physical strength, endurance, range of motion, things like that. And PTs do that with shoulders, I mean, back, legs. The difference with OT is that we're more focused on function. And when you think about it, the things that you do with sports or legs, it's like walking. It's, it's mostly moving and mobility, whereas all the, even if you don't have use of your legs, use your hands to do a lot of things. Everything that you do in a day from the time you wake up. I mean, we break it down into different categories, ADLs, activities of daily living, which is bathing, brushing your teeth, shaving, toilet hygiene, you name it. And then instrumental ADLs, it's like doing the dishes, laundry, then there's leisure pursuits, work activities, meaningful, purposeful things. So we're really focused more on function. If you remember anything about OT, it's about function. And because we do most things with our hands, it's usually focused a lot on upper extremity. However, we're not limited to that. It could be with cognitive deficits. It could be with vision. It could be with TBI deficits. Even, even at Walter Reed, we're one of the first to have OTs that are working with sexual intimacy and health. So it's really varied and uh, it goes across the entire continuum. I don't think there's too many PTs that work from neonatal, from 
infants that were just born all the way to hospice. So we really cover the continuum. So one of the things that happens frequently, particularly when you work at a trauma center like BAMC, is that when a patient has a major event happen, needs surgery, you get consultations to both physical therapy and occupational therapy. What would you say is the ways in which they complement one another and the ways in which they're different from one another? Well, I'd say the functional transfers that we do, there's some overlap there with the with the PTs as far as bed mobility or the toilet, in and out of cars. There's that's more that that type of functional thing as far as range of motion. But PTs aren't really going to focus on shaving, brushing your teeth, combing your hair. They're really just working on range of motion, taking a measurement and getting you where you need to be and getting your strength. Whereas we're more focused on those actual tasks and we'll break it down. And it's not just the things like ADLs. It could be something meaningful and purposeful that you want to do in your life. I had a patient that wanted to all he wanted to do is just be able to reach his nose or pick it. I mean, we set a goal for that. I mean, those are things that people just want to cut their own steak or something, things like that. And PT is not really going to get down to that, to that level. What is it about military OT that's different from civilian OT? The biggest difference, I would say, is basically that the military OTs, not the civilian, the GS workers OTs, but the military OT, we go through what... I would call it a physician extender course. It's called a 7-H course, a neuroskeletal evaluator. So after about two years of being in the military, we'll attend this course and basically learn how to diagnose, learn how to come up with treatment plans, task analysis, break things down. And part of that is to also work under a hand surgeon for six months doing lit reviews and presentations. And until that surgeon is comfortable with your ability to diagnose upper, extre upper extremity neuromusculoskeletal issues, until he signs off on you, then you, you don't get that 7-H until then. Once you have it, then you can order x-rays, MRIs, EMGs, but some medication with kind of I try and stay away from that. But just having that autonomy, which I don't know it any other way, I can't imagine being a civilian OT where the doctor says, okay, you're going to see the patient for two weeks or this many times, and this is what you're going to do. And I can't tell you how many consults I've got for patients that had one diagnosis and it turns out, well, no, actually it's this. This guy's got a trigger finger. But that's why we have specialty services. You can't expect the doc to know all those, every single diagnosis like that or, or rehab techniques or whatever. But uh, that's the biggest difference is that you can't do that in the civilian world. You can't come up with your own treatment plan. And uh, usually they have to go back to a doc and you get the doctor adjust your treatment plan. But OTs can say, I'm going to see this patient for this long and set goals. And when they come back and they've met them, they can keep going until they're where they need to be. As an occupational therapist, you've had two deployments, one to Mosul, Iraq, and another one to Kandahar, Afghanistan. Those were actually lengthy deployments. One was 15 months. The other one was 12 months. Can you tell us about your, those deployments and what it was that you did as an occupational therapist in a combat zone? Yeah, for a long time, our, our go-to-war mission has been combat stress. And without going into too much detail, I mean, it started with restructuring aids in World War II and, and one, And then was basically doing occupations, using activities in a therapeutic setting to get range of motion or whatever, or to do a meaningful, purposeful thing. People... Humans want to be engaged and doing things, not just rote exercises. So in Vietnam, we started focusing on restoration units, which were basically 
They didn't call them combat struts, they called them restoration units. And basically, an OT would, would be a place for you to get three hots in a cot, get you away from the battlefield. Soldiers that maybe they called it shell-shocked or whatever, just over, they were basically going to send them back home because they weren't functional. Or soldiers that were acting out, punched an NCO or shot into a dirt bank or something, discharged a weapon, just not functioning well in the unit. So this is a place to get three hots in a cot, get away from a unit, and kind of do a reset. And that's really what it was based on, just just that. And then the soldiers would return to the unit, which is what they all wanted to do. They wanted to be back with their buddies, a whole lot of guilt associated with being pulled away or being meta-backed out because somebody else has to replace you. So it started with that. And that's that evolved into the 80s to be more of a, a component, a combat stress unit that would deploy with a cache and be there for basically an extended version of that three hots in the cot. But what we started doing was integrating things, coping skills, assertiveness training, just group interactions and things like that. Folks could get more than just three hots in a cot, actually work on themselves, work on the issues that they had. But one thing that was different when I went to Iraq is that prior to that, you only got letters. And when I went in 2008 and nine, you could call home. So normally your unit was your family where you got your support. And here it is, these folks are calling home and they're still dealing with things that are happening on a daily basis that are crisis. I mean, from just small things like the kids are acting up to, I had one guy whose wife got raped while he was gone. I mean, how do you cope? How do you stay focused on your mission and the safety of the others that you're working with when you got that on your mind. I'm just saying it's different because we didn't have that connection prior to Gulf War Water. Actually, probably even a little later, most folks were just corresponding by letter. So there was a big delay and this was more immediate. So there was a lot of folks that needed that kind of, those kind of skills. Did you find that you were able to return those soldiers back to duty or were the stressors in their life typically when they got to your point so great that they ultimately needed to be returned back to the United States? No, we had a very high return to duty rate, like 98%. And what stands out most about those deployments to me, well, one, it was the most meaningful work I've done in my military career. I really just, I just to see how those folks came in and a week later, how they're leaving and they're just like, they feel charged up and they feel like they have the skills to, to deal with things, just having that reset. But what stood out most to me was the, the common question at the end. I would always have, what's your most memorable from this time? And the most memorable is often... Why do we wait until something like I do something stupid, punch an NCO or something? Like, why do we wait until then to give us this kind of course? It's all about being proactive and preemptive as far as preventative health. It's like, why don't we get these skills before we deploy? And uh, it's a good point. And recently we've taken that to heart. We've got a doctrine now called H2F. It's called holistic health and fitness. And so we have OTs, instead of having a unit that deploys with the unit, we have them at the units. It's a PT, OT, a PA, and a nutritionist, along with mental health, so that they know these people. They have PT with them. They, they know them personally. They trust them. And they're working on all those things all the time prior to deploying. So that's what I meant by our field has grown exponentially, more so in the past 30 years. We've always been hovering around 70 OTs army-wide all over the world from lieutenant to full bird. That's not a whole lot of people, pretty small community. And whereas PT has been more like 300, but now we are growing by, because we need more people at the units instead of at these large med sends or one OT on a post and stuff. So 
we're heavily recruiting and our numbers are going to probably be about 130 in another five years. So it's really grown. The field is really grown. So you mentioned that the the go to war mission of an OT is to to work in that holistic health, combat stress type environment, but you also have a specialized set of OT skills. Were there anything that you could use your OT skills for to take care of patients downrange that help them return to duty or prevented evacuation? I would say for me, primarily was the the behavioral health training and the courses we took with that. Mostly, I, that was more OJT than anything. The the polytrauma or the the other courses that I that I took burn patients. That was more. That's that's not something you're going to do downrange because those folks are being evac. So I would really say is it's the the behavioral health portion of it, the combat stress portion of it that I think was most helpful from my experience. I did do some upper extremity stuff from my first deployment, but it wasn't very much. I was just helping out, so I wasn't seeing patients from a a clinical perspective. So your career was really worldwide. As if, if someone were to look through your resume, which they can do on our website. But one of the things that I'm interested in is when you saw a patient that had something happen in a combat zone, did you ever think you have a situation where you said, if they had seen an occupational therapist sooner, the functional outcome of recovery would have been better? Did you ever encounter any of those types of situations where our listeners could say if they're active duty, for instance, maybe I should send that patient back sooner. Yeah. Once again, there's a large stigma with seeing behavioral health folks. And so the OTs were kind of bridged that gap, whereas we're more approachable. As a matter of fact, we were one of the first units. We were the first unit to deploy with therapy dogs. And so we would do walkabouts in Mosul to basically walk around with a therapy dog and people would just come up and want to pet the dog and you start talking and stuff like that. But to answer your question, it's more of just being aware of the impact of the things that we know behavior health-wise, that those things, the sooner you can identify those, the better off they're going to be in getting, getting funneled towards something like a restoration unit as far as that goes in a deployment. One of the things that many of our guests have mentioned is telemedicine and telehealth and how that's impacted their practice. How has telemedicine impacted occupational therapy? Well, when I was at Longstool, we kind of were playing around with it, starting it. And then one of many fields that was doing it and happened to come up with a few opportunities where there were Marines deployed to Israel or Poland. And basically they were neuromusculoskeletal injuries and they didn't want to send the troops back because they were only there for maybe four months and they were like, they're not going to get a replacement. So we did, actually did video link just like we're doing now. The challenging part of that is there are some hands-on evaluation things that you just can't do without having a facilitator there, somebody else to hear like here, press their wrist here or resist their wrist this way or press the thumb here. There's, I actually had to talk somebody to to do some of the provocative tests that we do to rule out certain injuries and to see what was going on. And uh, most of the stuff that we were seeing were not some type of traumatic injury. It was usually from sports or something like that, but that they were not very functional and we were mostly evaluating them that way. That was really the infancy of it. And I, I'd say that mostly the behavioral health part of it has grown quite a bit. We're actually doing that at Walter Reed now where, and most of that was spawned or propelled by COVID. I mean, we had the mechanisms in place. We had some small practice. I mean, I, I did very little of it in Launchstool, but it's really 
it's really taken off and becoming a mainstay at Walter Reed as far as the behavioral health stuff, the TBI stuff, as far as that goes. I guess I was really unaware of the amount of behavioral health treatment that OTs provide in the military. What kind of training do you get to be able to do that? Well, it's improved quite a bit. We've had what's called a combat stress course. The first week is mostly focusing on all the tenets of the combat stress and finding those things and how working with the command. And the second part of that is basically the second week of that is traumatic event management, which is called acronym TEM. It's basically how you gather those folks and help work through something that just happened, a traumatic event. I mean, it could be a hurricane. It could be somebody getting hurt, down rain. And, and that has evolved too. I mean, initially when I went to Iraq, one of the first TMs I did, I mean, it was one of those rhino vehicles and there was like you know, 15 civilians in there and it just got an IED and I was just, it was horrible. I mean, but working with those folks to process and get a reality check on some of the things that happened and helping them work through it, there's an actual process. And so that's how it started, kind of getting the commander there and also getting folks who are getting the other sides of the story. Because when things are happening fast, a medic might be there and say, why is it taking forever for the aircraft to get here? And then you get somebody that was on the radio. Well, it actually only took seven minutes. And so managing those, I mean, it was really hard. And it has evolved to the point where we're more facilitating the TEMs with the command and having them initiating them. So it's, it's a lot better than it was before. So combat stress specifically, what special courses yeah the traumatic uh the the burns course which and then the polytrauma course which are basically to prepare us for dealing with multiple amputations or trauma i actually arrived at walter reed two days after 9 11 and we were actually seeing patients who were burn patients not your typical clinic setting patient, but we were seeing burn patients and, and treating them. So that was, uh, I think the burn course kind of came out of that. And plus all the IEDs that were happening, trauma to fingers and stuff like that, not just lower extremity, but often upper extremities as well. It was so new at that time. I mean, you'd think that we would, as far as we've come with the prosthetics and stuff that, that we'd have it down, but I can remember making prosthetics out of a, a reacher to have a patient practice with that this is before they had all the things that they have now is so new we had a special force team that actually one of the guys lost his arm and we didn't really have any equipment or prosthetic stuff we weren't really used to that even with the advanced prosthetic shop that they had there they didn't have any trainers or anything for them to wear to practice for the body powered arm and stuff so Polytrauma course really prepared us to to deal with all those things and the the unique therapy that's involved and the lengthy therapy that's involved in rehab. Patients were at Walter Reed for a very long time, so we were seeing them not just inpatient, but also afterwards. But for, for patients who presented with behavioral health concerns or problems, how did you know when to escalate it? How do you know when they need to see a behavioral health psychiatrist, psychologist, or were you able to disposition patients and say, this is doesn't need to be escalated or this does? Well, I would say that in a deployed setting, that's that's not happening. We're not at that evaluation point. I mean, other than the walk-arounds, we would refer patients or say, well, why don't you come to the combat stress unit where, where they had uh, behavioral health, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers. And so that would be, kind of be the foot in the door, but it's not a formal referral 
And as far as seeing patients rehab-wise, while we're talking to the patients, going through working range of motion, pushing through the pain, whatever, I mean, you're really getting to know the patient holistically, understanding what's going on in their life and, and just trying to help them through that. But we're not the ones, OT's not the one to put in a referral to psych at that point. We're just trying to help them through the therapy. So it's not much of a behavioral health direction there. And at, the, at that time, we didn't even really have behavioral health OT like we do now. Well, you've really enlightened me as far as what an occupational therapist does on the battlefield. And I'm interested in the fact that they're increasing the number of occupational therapists, particularly as we holistically think about soldiers and making sure that they can perform their duties without overwhelming stress. What do you think are the lessons that we've learned from the past wars that prepare us for the next wars, particularly for occupational therapy? Prevention has become key. I mean, all the injuries that you have when you're not at war still happen when you're deployed. People still get into vehicle accidents. Tons of sports injuries occur. And so I think the H2F is really focusing on the preventative from the physical standpoint, but also from the mental standpoint, giving them those coping skills, the training, the mindfulness, all those things that they can work on cognitively and to be more squared away holistically. So that's really where I see where we've learned, basically taking that holistic mission to the battlefield. In looking through your CV, I was interested that you have multiple patents that have been granted for apparatuses that assist those with amputations or other disabilities or problems with activities of daily living. Tell us a little bit about how you became an inventor and how the patent process works, especially for somebody who's on active duty as an officer. Right. Well, it started with the selection of the OT program that I got involved in. It wasn't even accredited at the time. And basically what interests me most about it is that they were doing collaborative projects with interior design, industrial design, fashion design. I mean, we actually did projects with these other disciplines and we would make products to help those patients. So that's really where it started. And part of the assignments were to come up with products that would help them. So the very first invention I made was something called buttons, which was basically a clip onto the the buttons that you have, and I put Velcro on each side so that you didn't have to button them. You could just, you turned a, a button shirt into a Velcro shirt just by adding these two little clips on. So that was really, it really started there for me. And then my second invention, again, for the project at school was an anti-rollback brake for a wheelchair. Basically, it was kind of like a cam and it was activated by if you were on a grade so that when you were wheeling up to a door and you didn't have to lock your brakes, it would just, as long as you were on an incline, it would automatically, the cam would just roll into the wheel and lock itself. So I took that to a conference for OTs and got first place, a thousand bucks. And I was just, I just really loved that process of collaborating with the patient and, and coming up with something that's going to work for them. So that's, that's really where my invention started. And I, and started collecting tools and doing things and making things that really started there. And then I just really fell in love with the working with the patients at Walter Reed during my internship, just making custom fabricated one-off things for just their injury that would allow them to do the things they want, whether it was tucking their shirt or cutting their food or fishing, anything. You know, it's not something you could buy off the shelf, but custom make them. I really enjoyed that part. Patients saying, well, I just want to be able to do this. Okay, great. Let's, let's make it happen and keep tweaking it till it get, got, 
Got right. So what about the patent process? Is the intellectual property yours or does it belong to the army, the government? How does that work for somebody who's on active duty? Well, if the army chooses to patent, it's patented by AMED, the, the Surgeon General of the Army. It falls under their purview, but you are still listed as the inventor. And so if it does actually get published, I mean, I submitted over 30 patent applications. So I have quite a few of those that were published. But the ones that actually get patented, then you get like $500 from the military. So that's about it. So they own the rights to it. Some of them have expired and the military doesn't really have the capacity to market or pursue these. I worked on a lot of inventions and made a lot of different things and to the point that the military chose to patent them, but they don't really know what to do with them. I mean, they don't have a section to market these or produce them or to sell them to people. They're more, it's more in medicines and things on the battlefield that can help you, not so much for rehab. And that's been one of the biggest frustrations that like the, the ergonite that I made like 15 years ago, it's like, I know patients need this. They love it when they use it, but you can't get them anywhere. But the military is not going to pay for that. It, it, we're more focused on readiness and battlefield. So I noticed that on your CV for patents, it, it has an asterisk and it says assignee United States of America as represented by the Secretary of the Army. What does that mean? I'm sorry. It's not the Office of the Surgeon General, it's Secretary of the Army. That's right. That means they own the patent. It's under their name. So I'm just listed as the inventor. And that was fine. I mean, I really got star-eyed and wow, I'm going to make all these things. And I kind of agreed with my family. We're not going to spend all this money on patents, like $10,000. We'll let the army do it if they think it's worthy of it. And they can have it. I have a full-time job. I don't have time to market this stuff and pursue it. So Doug and I are surgeons. And so the one patent that you have that jumped out at me the most was the Jaeger knife. Can you tell me what that is? Well, I didn't name it that. The nonprofit who uh, kind of funded the research on it and stuff, and they work at Cal Poly, they named it that. But it's basically, it started with a patient that was missing his thumb and two of his fingers and, uh, and was not able to hold a knife, okay? And so it started with that, and I made some really crude kind of things. But the whole idea was, if you don't have something to oppose these fingers, how else can you hold a knife? And so I basically came up with something where it's a lever that presses on the back of your hand. So you don't have to curl your fingers around it. I have an earlier prototype here. I don't have to put my fingers around the, this T-grip. I mean, it's there, but even if you have some type of nerve damage or decreased sensation, or you're really using the back of your, your wrist. And so you can move this without even gripping and you can really crank it down because you're using your, your arm versus your wrist action and bending it like a normal life. And so I've made some hunting knives for folks so that they could skin deer too, to, because they have, they only have two fingers on one hand or something like that. So that's the one I'm most proud of. Looking back at the experience that you've had deployed, what was your most memorable clinical experience in that time? Wasn't so much over in a deployed setting. It was actually when I went to Ukraine and I was really kind of surprised at they don't really do rehab there. And I went with a nonprofit organization from Canada for a couple of weeks with C patients. And they just, they don't really do the rehab portion of it. It's, I was really surprised. And we were seeing patients that had surgery six months, a year ago, and there was no scar management. There was nothing. There was no rehab. And 
so much of it was avoidable if they just had some rehab to get where they needed to be. And I mean, they were having surgeries to cut through scar tissue just so they could move fingers or hands and stuff. I was just, I was just really shocked by that. That, that is really my most memorable. I was just dumbstruck. You know, it's not like they're a third world country or anything. It just really made me appreciate what we have. When you look back through your military career and think about the patients you've treated, are there any in particular that jump out to you that you say, that really is the epitome of what we do as occupational therapists? Yeah, I'd, I'd have to say it's a special forces guy who lost his arm because we worked on a device to basically, so he could wash his own back with a sponge. And that, because it was so early in my career, it just it's just the first thing that pops up in my mind because it's what really solidified my love for this profession was that the prototypes we made and working with the patient and he's very straightforward. He knew exactly what he wanted and, and I can make it for him. So I know that's not very exciting, but that is really the one that stands out the most to me. So you've had a very interesting career in the military from enlisted to aviation officer to OT officer, specialist corps. When the history books are written 50, 100 years from now, what would you want your legacy in military medicine to be? I want to be most remembered for the diversity of my career. Seriously, that is, that is the number one thing. And it's, it's helped me out in so many ways. Just being enlisted, you know, I had street cred with a lot of the patients I was seeing as an, as an OT. And uh, being a combat arms guy has helped me connect mostly with my patients. So that diversity has really been what I'd like to be remembered for. So do you ever miss the pilot days? I do. I do. It was a lot of fun. It really was. I'm fortunately now I'm getting into some virtual stuff that is really spot on. And so I'm getting back into it. We've been speaking with Army Colonel Arthur Yeager on War Docs. Thanks for uh, sharing with us your experiences and insights. And thank you for your service to the nation. Thank you both so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed talking with y'all. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team Wardox on wardoxpodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word. <laughs>